are entering the Freedom Hut. The liberal left is still chanting about the need to abolish ICE. It's a stupid idea, but they seem to be running with it. Why? Obviously unwise, but they must have a plan in mind, or do they? We'll get into that, and also a victory for the far left in our neighbor to the south, Mexico. What this could mean for cartels, for human smuggling, and for the U.S. economic relationship with Mexico. And also, looking at everything else going on with the North Korea deal to date, we'll talk about that and much more coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This This is The Buck Sexton Show. Where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make Make no mistake. America. Ready. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show, everybody. Great to have you here. Thank you so much for joining. So... We have a lot of folks running around right now who are uh, who are talking about the need to abolish immigrations and customs enforcement. We, we discussed this last week, and here's what I see happening. Because um, it, it seems on its face to be so dumb. It seems like such a a political loser that there must be some way that they're planning to make sense of this, right? And, and you know, you also have, at the same time as all this abolished ICE stuff is happening, a resurgence in the idea that millennials, young people are, are uh, comfortable with socialism. And you have the victory of this far-left social justice warrior, Ocasio-Cortez, in New York City, And that has led to think pieces like this one at Slate, which is kind of a hip left wing website of news and, you know, analysis or whatever. Why young Democrats are so open to socialism. Hmm. So you have young Democrats so open to socialism. You have the abolition of ICE as a rallying cry on the left. It certainly feels quite a bit like there is a uh, a radical leftism that is emerging right now, or that perhaps we're just seeing more clearly. Something's going on. Uh, something is, is changing. I mean, why Democrats are so open to socialism? This is fascinating, because I, I think that young people are only open to socialism, well, for a couple of reasons. One, uh, the media keeps telling them that it's cool. So that's very important because whatever they're told is cool, they're going to believe must be a good thing. Two, they don't know the history of socialism, right? They don't know what this has led to in the past. And three, and in some ways it's most important, they have no ability to look forward into their own future and conceive of what it would mean to live in a truly socialist country or a a country that is trending much more radically towards socialism than where we are right now in this country. And so the, the, there's a, a left-wing radicalism that is resurgent right now. There's something happening. And I'm going to tie this also into Mexico in just a few moments. Because there you had a far-left guy, uh, a far-left guy won their presidential election. And 
no one in the in the mainstream media is going to want to touch this, but I I obviously will. I think this is going to be a big a big problem for us. I I think this is going to be an issue because of what his plans are going forward for dealing with particularly dealing with the cartels. But for for let me stay on this socialism is cool meme. And you've seen this in the past, right? Bernie Sanders was the first effort to really run at a uh, national level, a pro-socialism presidential campaign. And they'll call it democratic socialism, whatever. That's, what, what do they really mean? What are they really saying? They're talking about a much more radical redistribution of wealth done by the state and with the idea that it's about equality even at the expense of freedom and prosperity. Right? Equality is a more important goal than prosperity and and individual freedom this is the this is the essential fundamental conflict we have with socialism and in this you know hipster millennial socialism we're seeing now but also it's a fundamental conflict of the 20th and now into the 21st century in developed countries now in countries that are mechanized countries that have seen the industrial revolution countries that are uh that that have created the material, the, the the circumstances of material prosperity, such that we don't worry about having to feed ourselves, really, right? We're not, we we don't have the same concerns as as we used to. Now there there are people that are just focused on, well, let's just spread the instead of increasing the wealth, let's spread the wealth. And Obama was very favorable to this notion as well, right? Obama was somebody who would go out there and say, you know, we need to you know pay pay your fair share. You know, you need to spread the wealth around, pay your fair share, and all of this. But they, the the young Democrats, as we see here in this slate piece, are, 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 quote, so open to socialism because they don't know what socialism has meant in the past. They don't understand what socialism really would mean in practice. And they even don't understand what socialism would mean for them. You know, it, it does not mean... Everybody gets an iPhone and all the avocado toast they can eat. You know, socialism in the context in in the case of Venezuela, I think, is a very that's a very important story that doesn't get told enough in this country, because to take a a relatively well off and sophisticated country like Venezuela with the largest proven oil reserves in the world, larger than Saudi Arabia's. And to turn it into the the eighth circle of hell uh, with massive violent crime problems, shortages of of bread and milk in the stores, and just in in every at every possible stage, though there was a justification for the government's position, and the Venezuelan government uh, under Maduro, the, the the Venezuelan government's basic rallying cry for everything it was doing was, well, it's the it's someone else's fault, and we're just trying to help people. You know, it's someone else's fault, and we are doing the best we can for the poor people. You know, uh, and that and that that gives them a lot of you know. There's a lot of places they can take that. They can run with that. And when you look at someone like Ocasio Ocasio Cortez here in New York City, you hear or not? I'm in D.C. I'm in the swamp, but up in New York City. Sometimes I get confused about where I am. You're seeing something similar. I, I saw over the weekend 
that uh, the Democratic Socialists of New York City, um, the Democratic Socialists of New York City are an organization that Ocasio-Cortez is, a, you know, is, a, is in good standing with. And on their official site, they will have, they have the following. They have all these things. Uh, this is on their, on their site via Twitter. New York City Democratic Socialists want to abolish profit, abolish prisons, abolish cash bail, abolish borders, and abolish ICE. This whole abolition of immigration and customs enforcement rhetoric, this is not happening in a vacuum. This is not just a an emotional response to all the images and the audio of children being separated from parents at the border, which I would note, you know, children are separated from parents when they commit crimes and do bad things all the time in this country. But, you know, the, the Democrats are way less interested in that because it's not politically useful for them right now. But trying to abolish all these things, you start to see that this is this is a radical agenda in, in the in a truth in the truest sense of the word. Uh, the abolition of ICE and the abolition of borders, this goes side by side. So, you know, and this is why you have to be so careful when you're talking about Democrats or trying to talk to a Democrat who's on the left and, and in good standing with the progressives. You'll say, you know, you guys are so hostile to immigration and customs enforcement because you don't want to, you just don't want the laws to be enforced, period. They'll say, oh, Buck, you know, immigration and customs enforcement, it was just constructed in 2003 and, you know, it's OK. Well, before that, it was U.S. U.S. Customs. Right. All, all the consolidation 2003 did was for bureaucratic reasons. They brought it under the overall umbrella of Homeland Security and was supposed to be streamlined and more effective. And whether it is or not is not really doesn't really matter for our purposes right now. It's just all the functions that Immigration and Customs Enforcement do existed before the reorg in 2003. And would have to exist going forward unless you really believe in the abolition of borders, unless you want to be an open borders country. And they keep saying, we're not, we don't want open borders. We don't want open borders. I'm here to tell you that a lot of Democrats, a lot of leftists are lying on that issue. They, they do want open borders. They just know the American people are not there with them yet. They use this among them. You know, this is what they say among themselves. This is what they'll say at rallies. Abolish ICE, abolish borders. By the way, abolish profit. That's the scariest one of all. And I, ha- I mean, this, I'm looking at this right now on their Twitter account. I'm, I'm reading this. Abolish profit? Think about that. I, you know, those of us who are sitting around like working ourselves, you know, probably into an early grave, but working ourselves crazy because we're trying to do better for ourselves, for our families. Uh, they would probably stop. We would probably stop doing that if there was no profit. Our society, which has so much prosperity, I mean, we are so well off. You look back. I mean, one of the reasons I love history so much is because, as you know, you understand history better. You understand the present better. You also have a context for how you should view our current moment in history. And it always keeps you humble because, you know, you know, we come and go pretty fast here, folks. We don't have a lot of time, so might as well be nice to people and do your best to be a good person, right? These are, these are important lessons you can take from history. But the system of capitalism that the left, including in America, 
And more openly now than we've seen in a long time, this system of capitalism that they rail against as unjust, as unequal, as, as has brought more people out of poverty, has given more people hope and comfort and happiness than any other economic system in the history of the planet. And it's not even a close call. And socialism has condemned generations and countless hundreds of millions of people to misery and poverty. And yet somehow in this country, there are folks who are powerful, who are wealthy, by the way. Elizabeth Warren lives in a $3 million house. Do you know that? Maybe 2.8 at current market value, but she's a millionaire, folks. And she's running around, oh, you know. And, but she's in good standing with these abolished profit people. This is an insidious ideology we're talking about here. You know, abolishing profit, abolishing borders, abolishing immigrations and customs enforcement. This is destructive. And they want to run around and cry about Trump and Trumpism, and they say it's fascism and Nazism, and they're just delusional. But when I see this, I see people that are effectively being openly Marxist. Uh, I have real concerns about where this country is going to head unless we confront this stuff head on. And that's what we'll do here on the show. 844-900-2825, 844-900-BUCK. I will be right back. I hope they keep thinking about it because they're going to get beaten so badly. I love that issue if they're going to actually do that. They're seriously talking about that because you are going to have a country that's crime-ridden. The Border Patrol, the Border Patrol agents, ICE, these people are incredible. Hashtag abolish ICE has made a lot of rounds on social media. You know, the, the activist set and the media are really focused on this. But even the Huffington Post realizes it's not a great idea. Abolishing ICE isn't very popular yet, it says in the Huffington Post. Uh, which is another way of saying it's just not very popular. So I, I can't really tell at this, at this stage of the game if this is just a leftist temper tantrum in the era of Trump and it's unwise and there's no method to madness, uh, or they think this is part of the long game of moving the country slowly but in their minds, in a, in a kind of, you know, Marxist sense of the inevitability of history, moving us toward a more radical left-wing society. And it'll take time, and, you know, the fact that whatever percentage, uh, you know, whatever percentage of people are in favor of this, here, here we go, favor abolishing ICE, this is according to Huffington Post, folks, left-wing sites. Yeah, I go root around on these left-wing sites, so you don't have to waste your time doing it. Uh, the percentage of of um, Hillary Clinton supporters here who favor uh, who strongly favor abolishing ICE is about 20%. That's what I'd guess. The radical left, the 20% of the radical left, which unfortunately runs the Democrat Party and, and most of the media, but that's who favors it. 20% of Hillary supporters, so your sort of standard Democrat, is in favor of this. Basically, no Donald Trump supporters are in favor of this. I mean, the Donald Trump supporters that say they're in favor of it either probably didn't hear the question or are just trying to be provocative to the to the people who are conducting the survey. Uh, 
And then, you know, you see the non-voter that they polled here. It's again, it's like four or five percent. So it's just the radical left that wants to do this. But the Democrat Party is being run increasingly by the radical left. And this goes to show you that they can't be honest about their real intentions. And so when they put forward someone like Ocasio-Cortez, who is all about abolishing profit, prisons, cash bail, borders, and ICE. They want to destroy all this stuff. Meanwhile, the rest of government, they want to grow endlessly. I always find this fascinating about leftists. The parts of government that we actually need, they are hostile to. And the parts of government that we don't need at all, they can't get enough of. You know, The military? No, no, no. We need a smaller military, less funding. The military is a problem. Department of Education? Oh, my gosh, there's not enough money for teachers in the Department of Education. Oh, no, what are we going to do? You know, they're exactly they're the polar opposite of correct on all of this. Uh, and their radicalism when it comes to the abolition of these different Remember, I mean, abolish profit is just. That's something that people say, and they're either too stupid to know what it means or. Or they're just. I don't know. They, they, they really want they're advocating. They're such malcontents that they're advocating for the misery and suffering that has been on display in every country that has ever even begun to try this. You know, we don't have to reach far back into antiquity for this. You just look at what's going on in Venezuela and you figure that Democrats can never they never learn their lesson about this. They never have a real understanding of what needs to be done. And they are completely willing to use this stuff at a minimum for base turnout. But I, but I also think that, you know, if, if they had their way, if the left had their way, they, they would implement some of this. I mean, abolish ICE and replace it with what? I'm going to call it something. Abolish ICE and replace it with nice? Everyone's going to be so nice to each other? It doesn't make any sense. This is their primary political issue. We're heading into a midterm. Are, they, are the Democrats telling you anything about how they're going to increase jobs, how they're going to, you know, help raise wages? How they're going to, you know, produce better health. People say, oh, Buck, well, they're not in power. Yeah, but they're not even talking about of what they would do if they were in power. They got nothing except Trump hatred and Che Guevara wannabeism. So a big election here in, uh, in Mexico and one that I think has implications that you're certainly not going to hear from most of the mainstream media, but they are troubling. They are troubling, to say the least. Mexico is, in many ways, our most important immediate security challenge. Uh, and I, I know that it's not framed that way. It's not discussed as though that is the case. But it is the case. When you look at the drug cartels, the human smuggling, the importation of lethal substances that are killing tens of thousands of people, of our fellow Americans, uh, Mexico is a massive security challenge. And you, you also have to wonder over the long term, will there be a strain of Mexican irredentism, meaning they don't want to they want to regain lost territory? Uh, that will become a political problem as well. I'm seeing here that there is already an effort to split. Well, people keep talking about this, the, the splitting California into three states, which it's not going to happen because it's just complicated. But it would certainly be an interesting situation if it were to happen uh, and you wonder if over the long term there's the possibility that maybe a separatist movement 
from within the American Southwest or along the U.S.-Mexico border will be a problem we have to deal with. But that's further down the line. For now, let's look at what happened here with this uh, Mexican national election. Now, you have a, a far-left guy, Obrador, uh, Lopez Obrador, who has won this thing. You know, he beat the, he beat the competition. The New York Times refers to him as an atypical leftist. Hmm. Atypical leftist. Okay. And they're saying that he rode a wave of populist anger fueled by rampant corruption and violence. Uh, And he wanted a landslide victory. And now they're saying he has a sweeping mandate to uh, change things with the country. And and that this is a huge rejection of the status quo and that he will, uh, this is according to the Times, end corruption, reduce violence, and address Mexico's endemic poverty. Folks, we have been to this dance before with some of our Latin American friends and, and you know, regional partners. We have seen this play out. You've got countries with all this corruption, with a lot of poverty, a lot of problems. And... They come out saying, well, you know what? We're going to find a way to address this. And the way they want to address it is usually the redistribution of wealth and more state spending and state programs that the productive class will have to subsidize in one way or another. This is a recipe for failure. And what ends up happening is that the government, and I know we were talking about Venezuela earlier this hour, but this is true. The government comes in and says, hey, we're going to fix your problems. And they don't fix their problems. And they need to find a scapegoat. Well, who's the scapegoat? If you're a populist socialist government far left radical regime whoever's doing well is the obvious scapegoat right the people that are managing to be prosperous and successful they're the problem they're the ones keeping you don't you see from having a better life so we'll just take more of their stuff and give it to you and you'll be better off and then all of a sudden people realize hold on a second well now there's less foreign investment now there's less productive activity going on now the people that know how to run farms or know how to run factories aren't really doing it anymore which means there's less fruits and vegetables in the market stall means there isn't milk in the grocery uh, aisle anymore you know you start to see all these problems they come up and they go oh well it's and, and then the prices start to go up right because prices are set by the market no matter what a government says a government can say whatever it can say the price is whatever it wants but the price is what the price is People get on the black market, they'll find a way. And then the government says, well, they're being greedy. That's why you don't have more access to you know, produce and products. It's because the greedy capitalists. So n- now we're just going to start seizing their assets. We're, we're going to take it from them. We're not just going to do it through redistribution, through taxation and, and other mechanisms of the state. We're going to actually try to run. Now you're, once you have control of the means of production, now you're with straight up socialism. And it's a question of do you have a revolutionary elite in charge? Then you're at then you're at communism, right? Then you're at the hardcore level. Now, even Venezuela is not communist, uh, but there is nothing to be gained from going down this pathway. And Mexico's problems are are vast, as we know. How, let me just say this. We had a, we just had a, an election where Lopez Obrador Uh, was the winner and this is a country that has for us the implications of this national election 
are more important than I think any other country I can think of off the top of my head. Maybe you could argue, you know, China, but, you know, we don't know who we really want to run China of the possible options, right? I mean, we've got Xi Jinping right now, but do we want, is there somebody better that we know of? Eh. But a, a far-left government in Mexico is something to be concerned about. And Victor Davis Hanson, one of my favorite writers, pointed out in National Review that once you start to look at what Andreas Manuel Lopez Obrador has said recently about the relationship with the U.S. and, and Mexico, you're concerned. And you start to worry. And you realize that there's some stuff that needs to be addressed real fast. He says, for example, that Mexicans have a human right to enter the United States as they please. Well, that doesn't that doesn't sound like our border is going to be particularly respected, does it? Uh, he says that this is an innate privilege that we will defend uh, about the right of Mexicans to come to America as they please. He has urged his fellow Mexicans to leave their towns and find a life in the United States. So he says that basically Mexicans can come to America as they please, and that should be the status quo. Do you think this guy is going to be helpful or not helpful on the issue of a border? Wall or a border. That actually is a border, right? I mean, do you think he's going to be working with us on this, or is he going to say, yeah, you know, it's the Americans. It's the gringos' problem. It's the Americans' problem. Hmm. Um, Hansen goes into some detail here I think is important. Background for the U.S.-Mexico relationship as it stands now. By the way, press is completely... They are, on the issue of Mexico, they're not telling you anything. They're not telling you anything. There was just an election in Mexico for the president. How many places have you seen and read that there have been over 120 assassinations of Mexican politicians and political figures, people that work for them, political aides, in the last year? 120 folks. They are knocking off politicians there left and right. Doesn't even, not even a news item here. No one even cares. No one even cares. And we pay no attention to this. I'm sitting here and others have started to raise the alarm too, saying that the Mexican state has just suffered in 2017. I, don't, I haven't seen the numbers yet for 2018. Well, I guess we're still in 2018, right? But 2017 was the worst year for murders in the history of Mexico. I mean, this is a country that I remember back in 2007, 2008, we were seeing videos on YouTube of decapitations and torture and straight out of the ISIS playbook, right? The, the, the way Al-Qaeda was operating, the way that the cartels were operating, were felt like they were very much aligned. You're not seeing much reporting about this now, are you? You're not seeing a lot of big news stories on how there are cartels that are engaging Mexican Marines, military units, in fixed, uh, fixed position gun battles, in large numbers and winning and driving off the Marines or forcing the Marines to have to call in close air support, helicopter gunships, so they don't get overrun. That's happening now. That's happening in the current situation in Mexico. Man, this is a country that, you know, is on our border. A lot of you listening to the show, you're like, yeah, Buck, I, you know, I can drive to Mexico in a couple of hours. Right here. You're not seeing reporting on the hundreds of millions of dollars the cartels are making from human smuggling. Just a lot of kids. It's all about kids crying. It's not about what does it mean to have a border that's not strong enough that we can keep these coyotes from smuggling people into this country? What does it mean that the cartels now 
are smuggling people in. And by the way, what do you think the preferred uh, method of payment is for someone who's being for an illegal, either Central American or Mexican, being smuggled into the United States by a cartel connected coyote? Well, if you run out of cash, what do you think they do? If you're a woman, by the way, I won't even get into it, but you can imagine they do terrible things. If you're you know, a woman or a man in some cases, I mean, this is the other option that they'll take, and with, with men they tend to take this option, is strap you with drugs. Send you across the border laden with heroin or fentanyl or a drug that when it makes its way into the American market could very well end up killing somebody, son, daughter, wife, husband. That's what's going on. I mean, we need to think much more about Mexico as a national security concern and one that affects you. You know, as much as I do like to spend some time for, you know, reasons of the, the, the global struggle against jihadism and it's, you know, ideologically, it's clarifying, it's important. Boko Haram is not about to show up at your house and, you know, kidnap you. The cartels might. Boko Haram is not connected to people that are going to rape and murder teenagers at your kid's school. MS-13 is. In fact, the cartels are connected to MS-13 and MS-13 recruits in schools all across the country. But they don't want to talk to you about this narrative. They don't want this to be something that if Americans were more familiar with it, then all the stuff, the the weepy-eyed stuff about it's nothing but valedictorians and people chasing the American dream, there's no downside, that wouldn't be a tenable position anymore for them. They'd have to tell us the whole story and not just some glossy version of the story that they want to present for their own reasons of power politic, which is Democrats just want more voters. That's all this is. Everything else is secondary. Here's what Hansen writes about Mexico. Facts are stubborn things and reveal Mexico, not the United States, as a de facto aggressor and belligerent on many fronts. Mexico runs a NAFTA-protected $70 billion trade surplus with the U.S., larger than that of any single American trade partner, including Japan and Germany, except China. The architects of NAFTA long ago assured Americans that such a trade war would not break out or that we should not worry over trade imbalances given the desirability of outsourcing to take advantage of Mexico's cheaper labor costs. A supposedly affluent Mexico was supposed to achieve near parity with the U.S. as immigration and trade soon neutralized. Despite Mexico's economic growth, no such symmetry has followed NAFTA. What did, however, 34 years later was the establishment of a dysfunctional Mexican state whose drug cartels all but run the country on the basis of their enormous profits from unfettered dope running and human trafficking into the United States. NAFTA certainly did not make Mexico a safer, kinder and gentler nation. Folks, Mexico is a problem for this country. I'm not saying it's only a problem, but it poses many serious problems. And here's what I want to talk about on the other side of the break. What do you think this new president, Obrador, is going to do about it? He's a radical leftist with some really nasty things to say about this country. You think he's going to be not just a good trade partner, but a good security partner? Oh, here's a hint. He has a way of dealing with the cartels that I have a feeling is going to make things much much worse. And this is the kind of security challenge. This is the kind of criminal challenge, criminal issue that could affect you no matter where you are in the country. Because the tentacles of the cartels extend into even now mid and small size U.S. cities and towns. What is Obrador going to do? I'll address this on the other side of the break. Stay with me. 
are committing human rights abuses on this border and separating children from their families. And uh, that, you know, is, is part of the structure of the agency. We can replace it, and we can replace it with a humane agency. I don't think ICE today is working as intended. Well, you think I you believe, should get rid of the agency? I believe that it has become a deportation force, um, and I think you should separate the criminal justice from the immigration issues, and I think you should reimagine ICE. ICE was established in 2003, right at the same time as the Patriot Act, the AUMF, the Iraq War, and we look back at a lot of that time and legislation as a, as a mistake now. Yeah, see, there's that talking point again about how 2003, yeah, they, they consolidated agencies, but the functions of the federal government did not change at all. It's crazy. Oh, man. Uh, but oh, so on, on Obrador, the new president of Mexico, I, I think this is really, really important. Um, it is believed that the likeliest approach he will take to the cartels is one of trying to negotiate with them. That so he'll pull the security services, he'll pull the federales, the Mexican Marines, and all the different units that are trying to fight against the cartels. He'll just start to pull them back and say, you know what? Keep the violence down, and we'll leave you alone. What do you think that means for us? Do you think that means that there'll be more or less drugs flooding into our streets? Do you think that'll be more or less funerals from people overdosing from fentanyl and heroin? This is our problem. Mexico, you know, a lot of the countries you talk about over, yeah, I mean, North Korea is our problem if they fire a nuke at us, but, you know, there are other countries that could try that too, right? Unlikely that that's ever going to happen. Mexico is our problem right now. The Mexican government's policies, its approach to dealing with the cartels, this is something that we have to handle. This is something that's on us. Uh, and we do not, I do not think we have a strong partner right now. Trump said some nice things about Obrador because, look, he's a new president. He's going to try to get a good relationship going with him. Maybe he will surprise me. Maybe he will take a uh, a different approach to this than I would think. Uh, here's a here's a line that uh, Victor Davis Hanson writes. Just write, just reading to you from what he wrote in National Review here, as we're talking about a relationship with Mexico. Quote: There appears to be little real self reflection in Mexico about how and why such a naturally rich country blessed with good soil, climate, natural resources, ports, and a strategic geography, remains so dismally poor. Does anybody uh, want to take a stab at starting that discussion? Anybody think that it's something uh, we we can begin to address? Why is our neighbor to the north so rule of law and orderly, and our neighbor to the south has such tremendous problems. By the way, Canada, you know, they've been growing weed. I mean, they've got illegal drugs, right? There's stuff that they, but it's just not the same. Why is that? Does anybody have any ideas as to why that is the case? Um, I think that, you know, this, this piece by Victor Davis Hanson, I really think you should check it out. Um, and he also refers to the kids being sent to the border as levers for one owns uh, later on entry. So he's saying that the kids are being used as a Trojan horse situation, which nobody else will say that. There is a huge range in home security systems out there, and there are thousands and thousands of customer complaints that come into the Better Business Bureau 
about the alarm companies that you don't want to do business with. Well, I have a fix for you, and it's the one that I use. Simply Safe Home Security. Simply Safe could not be easier to use. It could not be less obtrusive in your home. In fact, it looks cool. It fits in neatly with your decor. It's small. It's portable. Works off your Wi-Fi. And Simply Safe is a company that's all about customer service. They treat me right, and they'll do the same for you. There are no long-term contracts. They don't try to lock you into things. Check them out for yourself. Learn more about Simply Safe today at simplysafe.com/buck. That's simplysafe.com/buck to protect your home and family with an A-plus home security system. Simplysafe.com/buck. Buck Sexton. Permission. Decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. Make, make no mistake. America. Ready. Great. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Activate. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. Welcome back to the Buck Sexton Show. You would think, maybe, if you didn't spend much time watching them, you might you might think that the uh, the, the legal analysis world would be full of, of sober-minded thinking. But in our current era of an open Supreme Court seat, now that Justice Kennedy has announced his retirement, things are getting wacko, my friends. Things are getting crazy out there. Crazy. Uh, or, well, first you had the president mentioned that he met with a few. Before I get into the crazy, let's hear the saying. Here's what the president said about uh, meeting with nominees, play 13. During the morning, I interviewed and met with four potential justices of our great Supreme Court. Uh, they are outstanding people. They are really incredible people uh, in so many different ways, academically and every other way. And I had a very, very interesting morning. Very, very interesting morning indeed. Now, the expectation is that all of the judges that Trump has picked, all the uh, judges that he has looked at uh, so far on his list are people who are constitutionalists. And the left is, is terrified, quite honestly, that this is going to affect Roe, Roe v. Wade, uh, one of the worst judicial decisions of all time. One of the very, very worst in this country. And that includes a dark history with some really bad stuff. Uh, Senator Collins, meanwhile, who wants to make sure that we all know that she is a woman of uh, no conviction, that she is someone who, you know, as, as the senior U.S. senator from Maine, is looking first and foremost to protect her own political career, is really a Collinsist before anything else. Uh, she wants to make it sure, make make it clear that she has a litmus test. You know, she she wants a certain kind of person that has a certain view of specific cases on the court. Play nine. Justice Roberts has made very clear that he considers Roe v. Wade to be settled law. I would not support a nominee who demonstrated hostility to Roe v. Wade because that would mean to me that their judicial philosophy did not include a respect for established decisions, established law. 
established decisions like stare decisis, established decisions. I'm just going to say that. I'm not trying to be mean. Seems to be a deeply unimpressive person, this Susan Collins. Uh, not, not anybody who is lighting the world on fire with her intellectual prowess. I, I, I just, I'm keeping it real, okay? Beside that, though, beside that point, this is the dumbest argument that there is. Well, that's the way it was decided, so it should still be decided that way. Yes, the Supreme Court has a has a guideline of because they don't want you know it, it would be bad if you had you know one year this the next year that one year this the next year that right there's a a willingness to respect precedent, but that doesn't mean a complete deferral to precedent because then what's the point of the Supreme Court, right? You know that the people that really talk about established law when it comes to Roe are the same people who will, who will celebrate Obergfell on gay marriage. Gay marriage had not been the law of the land in this country for a long time, but it changed, right? Same people who view Heller, the case dealing with uh, uh, gun ownership in Washington, D.C., where I am here in the swamp, that that's a, a target to be overturned. I mean, there's just, there, there's no foundational principle to talk about with these people that are saying, oh, you know, it's established law, it's established law. So that that's just idiocy. It's idiocy in the guise of uh, some kind of real argument. Um, you know, you, you, okay, I mean, Dred Scott. Some would probably, if, if you asked what was the worst Supreme Court decision of all time, you would probably get uh, Dred Scott, which held that a, a person of African heritage brought to the United States, uh, could not be an American citizen, could not sue in federal court. Um, and yeah. So, I mean, if you're looking for the worst, that was a decision. That was a Supreme Court case. You know, they're, they're a uh, Korematsu, which we've been talking about the, the Japanese intern internment of Japanese Americans. That was a, a case that the Supreme Court looked at, and yeah. So, because it was decided, isn't an argument. You know, it, it's just not. It's it's a factor in an overall argument, you could say. But this is the the stupidity that's going to be on display. But I mentioned that you know, in the legal profession or in the legal analysis side of things, you might think to yourself, these are lawyers; they're trained; they they come at this from a, from a place of knowledge and, and intellect. And so they're not just out there saying crazy stuff to get attention. But if you thought that, you'd be wrong. Chief CNN legal analyst Jeffrey Tubin, writing The New Yorker, uh, he, he wrote that, uh, see, the new, see the new U.S. Supreme Court clearly. Abortion illegal. Doctors prosecuted. Gay people barred from restaurants, hotels, stores, African-Americans out of elite schools, gun control banned in 50 states, the end of the regulatory state. If this is not the legal analysis equivalent of wild fear mongering, I don't know what is. And, and on some of these things, I'd be like, well, yeah, that actually, you know, that sounds the, the end of the regulatory state sounds like a good thing. 
gun control ban in 50 states, you know, now, now we're getting somewhere. But some of these other things are just, he's just made up. It's just not true. Uh, gay people are not going to be barred from restaurants, hotels, and stores. That's not going to happen. Uh, that's not, I don't, I don't think he even makes a good faith serious argument that anyone is, on the Supreme Court would allow that to happen. But he's trying to scare people. They are doing everything they can to frighten everyone into thinking that there is some terrible calamity that will befall us unless we pick a kind of squishy moderate to, to put on the Supreme Court. And that would be an unforgivable betrayal of Donald Trump's promise and of his presidency. And he knows that. And that's why we're looking at these. Uh, that's why we're looking at these candidates now and know that no matter what the other side says, no matter what they present to us as their rationale for why the, pre- the sitting president doesn't have the right uh, to pick a Supreme Court nominee, we need to just stay away from it. We need to not allow them to get into our heads with this garbage. It is just a lie. Um, I know Kavanaugh and Barrett are considered leading contenders for the Supreme Court. I, I will say that what will be really interesting is you know, one of the last acceptable uh, bigotries out there for the media, one of the last ones that they'll, they'll just throw it around and they've got no problem with whatsoever is anti-Catholic bigotry. Um, and, and now there are a lot of Catholics I know who are culturally, you know, they were raised. I mean anti-Catholic for those who, who go to church and who believe in church doctrine. They can be attacked. They can be smeared. And with uh, Amy Barrett, I think she's a Catholic. I think Kavanaugh is a Catholic, too. I think there are a couple of folks out there who are uh, a couple of the Supreme Court possibilities who are Catholics. And they are going to get so hammered by the uh, Senate, by the Senate Democrats on this issue. And you'll notice that they don't they don't pull back at all with the whole well, you're a Catholic. So you ba- basically you're a Catholic like Scalia was. So you really can't be a Supreme Court. Uh, you really can't be a Supreme Court judge. Hmm. And I, I'm assuming Sotomayor, but I could be wrong. I'm guessing I should say Sotomayor was raised Catholic, but I don't know how you can square being pro-choice with being a Catholic. I don't understand that. I I just I don't get it. Um, so, I mean, the church hasn't moved. There's some issues you could talk about same-sex marriage. The church is. Uh, is at least the, the Pope is speaking about, and the Pope says a lot of things uh, with a little more a, a different tone than in the past on life, on abortion. There is no, there has been no shift uh, in Catholic doctrine, and so I, I just wonder. And on Pelosi and these others, they they should be denied communion. I mean, they actually should be excommunicated. But that's now I start to sound like Torquemada, who we talked about on the Freedom Hut podcast. By the way, for those of you who listened. You should check out the Freedom Hunt with Buck Sexton. It's a lot of fun. We talk about all kinds of things. Writing history, one of our new segments that we'll be doing sometimes. Commie Bear makes an appearance. It's good stuff. You should check it out. Uh, but but here's here's the real the real roadmap of what's going to happen. And you know, Collins and others are, are giving us a sense of this already. Uh, this is going to be one of the nastiest political fights uh, that you, we have ever seen over the Supreme Court, and it's going to be so nasty in part, I think, because. There's really no mechanism for the Democrats to stop it. There's nothing they can really legitimately do to shut this thing down. So they're just going to rely on hysteria and 
pressure campaigns. And it's going to get very, very ugly. But I want you to always keep an eye on the way that they're making, the way that they're talking about these different uh, Supreme Court picks and, and understand that they're not making good faith arguments. Liberals have become far too accustomed to having a Supreme Court that gives them what they cannot get through the legislature. And they think that that has been the status quo for a long time. And whatever the liberals get from the Supreme Court is sacrosanct, cannot be changed, cannot be touched. Conservative victories are always temporary. Liberal victories are forever. That's the way they look at it. And that's the Supreme Court that they want to have in place. And anything short of that, they will view as unacceptable. I even saw a, uh, a legal scholar. Uh, I forget what the guy's name is. Um, I, I even saw a legal scholar out there who was recommending that the Democrats when they come back into power, engage in court packing, meaning that they, they put more, that they create more Supreme Court seats and then just put more leftists on there. So this is, they're, they're not operating from a place of good faith or honesty. They're just operating from a place of, we want judges who give us what we want. Not to interpret the law, not to be faithful to the Constitution. We want people to stand up there and write. I mean, in the case of someone like Sotomayor, semi-coherent screeds that are policy papers dressed up as legal interpretation. But that's what we want, and we want it now. That's their approach. So make no mistake about it. This is going to get uh, particularly ugly, as we've been saying. And, you know, right this week, it's Fourth of July week, and so things are going to, when we come back uh, after the holiday, Although it's kind of a weird holiday this year, you know, fourth. What do you do on a on a Wednesday? What do you do with a Wednesday? I mean, John and Mike, do you guys even have anything? What do you do when you got Wednesday off? You know, you rock out on Tuesday. I'm an old man. If I rock out on Tuesday, it takes me till at least Thursday or Friday to recover. I don't know. I can't go out Wednesday night really because I got to do a, a you know six a.m. call here at the office. Mike, John, you guys have any? You're plans? not going to see fireworks. Yeah, I'll see fireworks. And people get mad at me over. I always say fireworks are overrated. Yeah. And I, no, I know. Everyone goes, ooh, ah. You know, I'm like, look, if you're there with your kids, I get it. You know, the wonder and all that stuff, fine. But I, I'm always amazed when I see adults sitting there, you know, drinking shivis on the rocks with a bunch of other adults, and they go, <laughs> ooh, ah. It's like, are we cavemen? Have we never seen, we've never seen fireworks before, folks? Like, I don't know how exciting this really is. I know. Come at me. Tell me all your, you know, everyone gets mad at me whenever I say this, but I, but, but then people will secretly on the side say, you know what? You're right. Fireworks are kind of boring. You know, it's fine from a distance. You're sitting there. If I'm sitting there drinking my uh, my Chardonnay. That's right. Bougie style. And I see some fireworks. Yeah, it's nice. It's fine. But I don't know. I just can't get that. I can't get that excited about it. New and, York, you got a rooftop party you go to. You know, you yeah, know there's stuff. look, I'm here in the district. I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of things. Uh, I'm sure there's going to be all kinds of stuff going on where people are talking about America and freedom. I mean, look, any excuse to barbecue gets me excited. So I will say that. But having a having a holiday on a Wednesday, this this is the word. It just seems un-American to me. And we're celebrating the most American of holidays in an un-American way. Because we should have a long weekend, folks. We should all be piling into cars, getting on you know the interstate, and having to go see in-laws that we wish we could avoid seeing, but we've got no choice, right? Like that's what a holiday is supposed to be in America. That's Thanksgiving. Well, yeah, John, that's Thanksgiving, too. I agree, but that's what's happening right now with this. So I'm a little, di- I'm a little disappointed at the calendar right now. I've got, I've got 
problems with this calendar. They need to either give us off Monday, Tuesday, or Thursday, Friday. Yeah, exactly. That's they, what you they, we, need, we need this to be a long weekend because right. we're not savages. This is not nom. There are rules. You guys um, sound like commies, if you ask me. Taking extra days off. Yeah. Getting paid for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I know, I know. I, I agree. All right, guys. Uh, we got to roll into a quick break. We'll be right back. Listen, folks, do you have animals digging under your fence? Either pets escaping or predators and pests coming in. If you're tired of trying bricks, wood, or concrete, let me tell you about a solution. Dig Defense. It's genius. It extends the protection of your fence underground. You install at the base of any fence to protect your pet and your property. All you need to get this done, folks, a hammer and gloves. You can install Dig Defense yourself and stop the dig. No more chasing after Fido as he leaves the backyard. Chase him around the backyard instead. Stop the dig now with Dig Defense, available at Lowe's, Tractor Supply, Menards, Wayfair, and StopTheDig.com. Menards and StopTheDig.com. And now for the month of July, visit StopTheDig.com. Use the promo code BUCK. For 10% off, that's StopTheDig.com and use promo code BUCK, B-U-C-K, for 10% off your whole whole order at StopTheDig.com. Look, I, I just don't even know how you can trust anything that this administration says or does. Through this debacle that has been this entire family separation process, the one thing that has been revealed is that this government, this administration, is incompetent. And in the event that you didn't know it before, you know it by certainly now. They lie. They lie. They lie. They lie. They lie pathologically. They lie with impunity. They lie constantly. They lie one time right after the other, like if they had hadn't said anything before. Sometimes I think that uh, Anna Navarro over at CNN, I mean, maybe maybe it's just a, a lack of word dexterity, you know, running short of the vocabulary. The, the way that she does her analysis is just I'm like, is that really the best we can do? But, uh, you know, they put her on TV all the time. Like, we're supposed to listen to her. I, I don't understand it. But they do. They, they treat her with a lot of respect. They quote Republican over there at CNN. All she does is bash the administration. Among the dumbest people I know of on television today. Carol in Pittman, New Jersey. Carol, good to have you. Hello, Buck. How are you? I'm, I'm good. So happy to be here. Thanks so much for uh, calling in. So many things I want to talk to you about, but the thing foremost in my mind is tariffs. I'm very worried that this could be used against the administration. Um, I feel like there needs to be strategic patience. You know who agrees uh, with you, by the way? You know who agrees with you? John Sununu. Play clip three, my friend. I think in the long run, the president is a free trader, but he does understand that over the years we have drifted into this horrible position. Uh, he's using a tactic that might be different than, than some of us would use, but it is a tactic to get this process back to a free trade structure, both with China and the EU. We may not like this transition and the policies involved in the transition, but I think the target is to get to a free trade policy in the long run. And, and that's what I think we ought to be keeping our eye on. I agree with Sununu, Carol. Um, and I'm going to talk more about this in, in just a little bit. We're probably going to talk uh, trade in the third hour of the show today with some more specificity about the upcoming tariffs on China. But uh, so is that that's what you, you wanted to get into that, right? 
Yes. Yes. Okay. Well, I'm, uh, I'm worried. All right. Well, your wish is our command here in the Freedom Hut, Carol. We will get to uh, the issue of tariffs. And don't worry yet. I think everything's going to be all right. I'll tell you more about that in just a few. Um, are conservatives weaponizing free speech? Is that even a thing? Liberals seem to think it is. How is it a thing? What are they saying? If you stay with me through this break, my friends, I will tell you. He's holding the line for America. Buck Sexton is back. Is free speech a conservative weapon? Uh, This is uh, an astonishing piece of not uh, not editorial, my friends. This is a reporting. This is reporting courtesy of The New York Times on the issue of free speech and how they think now that free speech is wah, wah, being weaponized by conservatives. Let me read you some of this. This is, remember, folks, not an op-ed. This was reported in the politics section of the New York Times as a news story. And I quote, On the final day of the Supreme Court term last week, Justice Elena Kagan sounded an alarm. The court's five conservative members, citing the First Amendment, had just dealt public unions a devastating blow. The day before, the same majority had used the First Amendment to reject a California law requiring uh, requiring religiously oriented crisis pregnancy centers to provide women with information about abortion. Conservatives, said Justice Kagan, who is part of the court's four member liberal wing, were weaponizing the First Amendment. The two decisions were the latest in a stunning ring of victories for a conservative agenda that has increasingly been built on the foundation of free speech. Conservative groups borrowing and building on arguments developed by liberals have used the First Amendment to justify unlimited campaign spending, discrimination against gay couples, and attacks on the regulation of tobacco, pharmaceuticals, and guns. Liberals, my friends, and so that's the end of the quote there, uh, liberals are... Not in favor of free speech. They're in favor of what they're in favor of, meaning that liberals interpret laws. And this is very important for you to keep this in mind. Liberals interpret laws based upon what they want the law to say. You will be hard pressed to find a progressive leftist who comes along and says, you know, I really disagree with this outcome of this law, but that is what the law says. You'll notice that the liberal wing, and this this is where the distinction is. This is how there's a separation between conservatives and liberals. You will see sometimes, or many times, when there's a contentious issue in front of the Supreme Court, and this is also just the way, this is beyond the core. This is the way liberals and conservatives see the world, right? But the conservative justices will say, well, you know, this seems like an unwise thing, this policy that you have, but this is what the law says, and it is constitutional. There's nothing in the Constitution that prohibits this. The way liberals approach the law, the way liberals approach uh, issues of constitutional interpretation, they say, well, this is what the law should say, and so we're going to say that that's what the law says. Which is just another way of saying the law is non-existent, really. It's just a question of what day it is and what any particular progressive power feels like instituting as the law. And this is very troubling, but you see this with free speech. 
You know, it wasn't long ago that you thought of the liberal left in this country as being the big free speech. They held themselves up as the free speech champions, right? The Berkeley free speech movement. Now there are, in in a tremendous irony, there are few places in the country where there's less free speech than a college campus. Berkeley, high up on that list. These these uh, in liberal institutions, these leftist institutions, places like the ACLU, it wasn't long ago the ACLU would sue anybody so that they could promote, uh, you know, r- radical free speech, right? That would be one way of calling it. You know, the, the more insulting you can be to, you know, if you can put a, a crucifix in urine with public dollars, you know, go for it, right? I mean, whatever it was, that was an insult to Christianity to uh, establish societal norms. Uh, and by the way, I, I'm pretty. I try to be as close to to a a free speech hardliner as possible. So I, I do believe that speech that's insulting, that's enraging, even is protected. I, I do believe that the most grievous religious insults are completely protected speech. And I also believe that uh, calling you know one political party, for example, in the American in the current American context, essentially a you know socialism with the face of of democracy is or with the face of the Democrat Party, is fair to say, right? I mean, I think that very harsh political criticism as well is is protected speech. Dem- I mean, liberals, Democrats, the left, they don't buy into that. They believe, and this is why I'm always so opposed to hate speech reg- uh, reg- um, regulations. This is why I'm so opposed to any efforts to qualify speech based on the desirability of the content. That's why I have I have concerns about this. That's this is why, as I see what's going on, what's happening right now, I understand that the the left is is abandoning the notion of free speech because they're losing the argument. They're losing the argument over uh, religious freedom. They're losing the argument over forced, compelled speech. You know, they're saying, "Oh well, you know, why can't it's just a medical procedure?" No, abortion is not just a medical procedure, and. Forcing somebody who, at least professionally, exists to avoid something, forcing them to, you know, this would be like saying, you know, all doctors are mandated by the state of California to tell people who are in the early stages of developing, you know, or are are showing warnings for lung cancer. You know, you could you could just keep smoking and maybe nothing will happen to you. That would seem pretty antithetical to what what they're trying to accomplish. Right. That would seem to be quite a stretch, but that's really what's going on here. That's what has been happening. Uh, compelled speech. Uh, when it comes to abortion, by the way, they they wish if liberals could, they would outlaw criticism of abortion. They would outlaw nasty speech about abortion providers. Uh, abortion is the this is why things are going to get so ugly of the Supreme Court nominee. Abortion is the single issue that is of greatest psychological importance to the left right now. And I think it's because they realize that once the country comes to its senses on this, there will have to be a reckoning uh, with what NARAL and Planned Parenthood and these organizations have been pushing and what Hollywood has been a part of here and what they have done. It is an egregious, egregious uh violation of all the most basic human decency and our obligations to each other as human beings. But I don't want to get too far into that conversation right now because that's all I'll end up talking about. 
Uh, but just this whole notion, as I sit here, that the First Amendment has been weaponized. What does that even mean? That conservatives will push their ideas even if it upsets liberals, and so that's weaponizing it? I mean, this is crazy. I mean, Kagan is a perfect example of leftist jurisprudence uh, when you see this, you know, they, they just want to find a way to outlaw stuff they don't like. You know, they, they want it. By the way, they'll extend this to making you use pronouns for people that aren't actually even pronouns, but you'll be required under under pain of state sanction to use pronouns that are uh, completely and, and utterly made up, come out of nowhere. Uh, you, the, you know, Canada's just been dealing with this. This is, how, this is how Professor Jordan Peterson became so well-known. He's like, I'm not using, like, Z to refer to somebody. Sorry. That's just weird. Uh, you know, I'm not changing speech because people have this belief in their minds about who they are and what they should be all about. Uh, but I, I do just think it's so interesting that the, the ground has entirely shifted and conservatives want to be able to make the argument and want to make the argument freely, and they also want to be able to express their ideas and liberals are constantly turning. I mean, it's fascinating because they'll say, oh, Trump's a fascist. Liberals are constantly turning to the power of the state to shut down speech that they do not like. You know, liberals will turn around and find every justification imaginable for them to be able to dictate what you can say. Right? They'll, they'll move around the law however they have to. And this piece just really struck me as at least it's honest, right? At least the weaponization of speech is something that they'll talk about openly now. And and it's going to get a lot worse, folks, because as they continue to, and I'm going to talk about the political losses that I think they're facing, but as they continue to not get their way, you're going to be in a situation where, or we're going to be in a situation where they're grasping to try and stack the deck in their favor. They're, they're going to try to find ways to... Um, even out the political momentum and and tilt it toward their side because they're losing on some of these things. They're just losing. And so they're losing it as a result. Uh, they are they are not committed to freedom of any they're not committed to freedom of any kind. Unfortunately, the only freedom they really believe in is the freedom to uh, to terminate a pregnancy and end a human life. Uh, that is the most sacred freedom to Democrats, and it's why they are so utterly freaked out about this Supreme Court situation. Uh, but I want to talk to you about what I think is coming on the political side, too, here. Some interesting insight, believe it or not, from Chuck Todd. Here's what here's this the short version. Trump is winning. We'll get to that in a moment. The announced retirement of Supreme Court Justice Anthony Kennedy this week helped make one political reality clear. Despite his overall unpopularity, President Trump is winning, and the Democrats right now are reeling. The Supreme Court. Mr. Trump is about to shape the court for a generation by choosing a possible tie-breaking conservative justice, and he's already filled the lower courts with like-minded conservatives. How about the Republican Party? The president's approval rating among Republicans is around 90%. Elected Republicans fear criticizing him, and the party has become a cult of personality, his. How about fake news? Mr. Trump has turned that phrase, which initially referred to the phony Russian-generated stories designed to support his campaign in 2016, into an applause line now to discredit responsible reporting showcasing his misdeeds. How about credibility? 
If reporters faithfully fact-check the president's serial misstatements, they risk being considered biased. If they don't, the misstatements gain traction. Either way, Mr. Trump wins. So there you have Chuck Todd, who at least is smart enough to figure out that, indeed, Trump is winning. And this is a, a recurring theme here on the Buck Saxon Show, as you know. But it's one that I, that I do like to spend some of our time on because certainly the mainstream media does not want to do it all that much. They've thrown everything they have at this guy. Every dirty trick in the book. They had the October surprise before the election with the Billy Bush tape. They've run a special counsel uh, investigation of him. They're hounding all of, uh, all of his White House employees. They're the entire... Washington, D.C. and Acela Corridor, which is for the Acela train that runs from Boston to D.C. It's supposed to be a high-speed train, but it's really not that fast. Uh, that entire set of the country is, uh, all those reporters are, are effectively an oppo research team against this president. That is what they view as their role. That is what they do. They do not tell positive stories. They do not want to tell positive stories. But this is really a warning from Chuck Todd about how, despite all, All of that, despite everything that they have done to try and derail this president, to try and, you know, get his associates arrested and imprison people and drive a wedge between Trump and the most important members of his team. Guess what? He is still thriving as president. And the country, no matter what they try to tell you, the country is absolutely, positively, doing well the country is doing well right now the country is not in a place where we should be worried about fascism or she we should be worried about i mean that's just crazy talk right and chuck todd is sitting here saying well we think he's terrible and he's so scummy but meanwhile he's winning you know also um our, our friend michael goodwin who writes the new york post he he wrote a column of the weekend about how yeah that's right despite all the stuff that they say all the stuff that they do it, it is in fact the case that Trump is winning. And this is driving them even crazier and crazier. What is it that they think that they are going to accomplish at this point by continuing the same stale narrative? By the way, this whole thing of, oh, we fact check his lies or, you know, when Trump says something like, you know, this is going to be the great, this is going to be the greatest night of, of, you know, of all time, folks, when he's like, you know, giving a speech at an event or something. Like, oh, it's not the greatest night of all time. They think that obtuse literalism is an important bulwark of our democracy now, right? Oh, oh, he said this, and it really meant that, you know? We, we get what he's saying. It's not that he's uh, taking us intentionally in a direction and then switching directions on issues that are important to us. At least, I don't, I mean, unless I'm forgetting something, you know, um, but, but also, given how arrayed against him they are, uh, given that he does, you know, he does a little bit of exaggerating. He's uh, infelicitous, I think, sometimes with with his words. He does not use an economy of words, that's for sure. But given what they've tried to do to take him down, that they haven't succeeded, I think this has thrown the left into something of a panic. I think this makes them really worried. Because what will it mean for them if you have Republicans do very well in the midterms now not only did we have this this blip of, oh, Russia and all these excuses and Comey. What's the excuse going to be if Republicans win the midterms, folks? What are Democrats going to tell themselves then? I mean, you and I can go just go bathe in liberal tears all day. But 
there is no real excuse that's ready for them. There's nothing that they'll be able to come up other than what? Just just keep calling the country racist. Keep telling people who voted for Obama twice, but now they vote for Trump because they're disappointed with the policies of Obamaism that they're racist. That's really going to win hearts and minds. They've just got nothing. And they refuse to really look at the underlying truths here, which is one, the Democrat Party. And this is something we've been talking about, particularly today on the show, is a far left party now. The, the notion of it as a centrist technocratic party is a joke. It's a joke. What do Democrats stand for? Uh, well, you could say they stand for these. The, they stand for concepts and they use that in order to gain recruits. And they've also got a lot of social cachet. Right. But the concepts are, you know, equality and helping the poor. These are things. And you go, oh, Buck, those all that sounds good. Right. That sounds good. OK. How does that work in practice? Oh, you're going to have this the force. You're going to use the force of the state to seize property from some people to give it to others. It's worked wonders for Venezuela. This is not a good idea. Folks, their ideas are bad. Uh, the the progressive left hasn't had a good idea in this country in in a while. Uh, and I think that's really what the problem is now. What are they promoting in opposition to Trump? What are they saying that they what would they do for the country better than what Trump is currently doing for the country? And I, I just don't think they have an answer. So I mean, Chuck Todd, as much as I think he's you know, he falls in that category of pretending to be just a journalist when in reality, you know, he's a Democrat. Okay, just a journalist, but happens to be a Democrat pushing a Democrat narrative all the time. Uh, But at least he sees this for what it is, which is that their their efforts to stop Trump and their efforts to bring down this administration have not only failed. Trump is popular with his. They say he's unpopular. That's nationally. But all presidents are like in the 40s in America because we just. Oh, yeah, we blame that guy. Right. But we just need to hang on, folks. I think the midterms. uh could be sweet. I have a feeling. Buck Sexton. Permission decoding the news and disseminating information with actionable intelligence. One small thing. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. This is the Buck Sexton Show. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. Buck Sexton. It is Buck Sexton. Now. We don't back down on the tariffs no, against no, China. No, 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 no. Look, we're in for you know we put in two hundred and fifty billion dollars worth of product. Uh, the tariffs are, in fact, it could go up to five hundred, frankly, if we don't make a deal. And they want to make a deal. I will tell you, China wants to make a deal, and so do I. But it's got to be a fair deal for this country. One of the hard things is our presidents and our business leaders—they were missing in action. The European Union is possibly as bad as China, just smaller. Okay, it's terrible what they do to us. European Union, take a look at the car situation. They send the Mercedes in. We can't send our cars in. Look what they do to our farmers. They don't want our farm products. And now, in all fairness, they have their farmers, so they want to protect their farmers. But we don't protect ours, and they protect theirs. Uh, we've been very nice to Canada for many years, um, and they've taken advantage of that, uh, particularly advantage of our farmers. And at the G7, the president actually proposed that they get rid of all tariffs and drop all barriers and have uh, really great trade. And they uh, refused that. And escalating tariffs against the United States does nothing to help Canada, and it only hurts American workers. The president is working to fix the broken system, and he's going to continue pushing for that. This is going to be a a defining issue for the Trump presidency. This is also going to be where you're going to see, I think, 
some of the most unexpected success uh, with the Trump administration. Or rather, this is where the conventional wisdom is likely to be proven wrong once again when it comes to an issue that uh, Donald Trump has become fiery on, become attached to, that, that he wants to solve. Now, I understand that this uh, Friday, I believe it is, there's going to be some tariffs that go into effect vis-a-vis China. Uh, it's going to be something that people look at as the as a, a possible, uh, yeah, $50 billion of Chinese products starting this Friday, a 25% tariff on them. Now, that's a fraction of just overall U.S.-China trade. Let's understand that. And we also, I think, have finally come around to the recognition that we do that, that to say free trade i like free trade is meaningless because trade right now is not free countries are gaming the system countries are using every means every mechanism at their disposal in order to try and help their own domestic industries to engage in you know what, what they view as best for their people right the eu does not have does not have the uh, tariffs on or even total block on U.S. import of certain meat products, for example, because they're really worried about contamination or GMOs or whatever. That's not why they're doing it. They're doing it because they think it's better for their own domestic meat producers. As a total aside, by the way, there's a real problem now with uh, French vegan terrorists, which is something that I think I'll have to address on the Freedom Hut podcast this week. But these vegan terrorists are going nuts. And I just always want to say, you know what you do if you see a vegan terrorist? Feed him a cheeseburger, and he won't be a vegan anymore. Problem solved. But the EU has these things in place because they think it's best for them. The same with China. China's GDP has taken off like a rocket ship since the 80s. Lots of tariffs. Lots of predatory trade practices. Trump is not saying, I just want to put tariffs in place because tariffs sound like fun. He is coming out and saying, hold on a second. We need to be in a situation where other countries play fair with us, where other countries are going to respect that we have our own economic interests. And that means a willingness to go to the mat on some of this stuff and push back. You know, it's it's so fascinating. It really is the the elevation of the internationalist Obamaist point of view on these things, where it's just agreement becomes its own end. Well, we, we just need to find a way to all agree on something, and then that's great, right? Oh, everyone's going to like this together. Well, you know, it's a multilateral trade deal. What could go wrong? I keep telling people that anyone will listen. People who get mad at Trump for abolishing NAFTA, NAFTA existed before the Internet. I mean, NAFTA was created before the Internet. Think about how much commerce has changed and any revisiting of a massive trade agreement that clearly affects American jobs and workers is something to be afraid of. I I just don't get it. I I think that a lot of this is driven by a sense that, uh, you know, well, one, of course, Trump hatred. People hate Trump. But also things are good right now and people don't want to mess that up. And I think Trump feels very strongly about this, too. He doesn't want to mess things up. Economy's really strong. Unemployment's really low. The Democrats got nothing. They don't have a prayer of a blue wave in the fall. If if the election were held tomorrow, my friends, I think we're all quite clear. I think Republicans would gain seats 
House and Senate if it were held tomorrow. The only way that really changes is if there's major disruption in the economy. So I understand the need for caution here. I would add this, though, to our conversation. If you're going to do something about trade and trade imbalance long term, if you are going to get China to stop some of its predatory practices and behaviors, then you need to do it from a position of strength and you need to be willing to take action when you can afford some disruption. What I mean by this is the stock market dips 20, 25, maybe 30 percent. Right. You know, S&P all of a sudden crashes out. You got a lot of unemployment surges. You think anyone's going to want to risk any trade disruption then? You think you think there'll be the political will to engage in the kind of brinksmanship? Because that's what this is. This is a game of chicken. Trump is playing chicken with the EU and chicken with China. Now, we got the biggest, baddest car on the road. And in the past, with the Obama team and people before him as well, the idea was, oh, well, no, we just we don't want to we don't want to scare you into driving off the road. So we'll just what do you want? And we'll pull off the road. You can win our game of chicken, so to speak. That was the approach. Approach is very different now. Is it going to work? I can't tell you it's going to work. You know, maybe China is uh, absolutely hell bent on keeping things the way they are, even if it means that they're going to, you know, I don't know. One of the problems you have in any negotiation is that your opponent is not necessarily smart or rational. I think the Chinese government is rational in many ways. I do think the government is smart in many ways, but they also have a different long-term outlook than we do, right? I mean, do they really want shared global prosperity, or is it just China at all costs at everyone else's expense? I'm not sure how to answer that question. I think a lot of people would have to think long and hard about it before they did. But Trump has the capital now, and the economy has the leeway now to absorb some some disruptions. The economy has the ability now to take some take some heat and not have everyone freak out because there's going to be some rough days. I mean, I, you know, if this thing goes into effect on Friday, yes, yeah, stock market's probably going to take a hit. Your 401k might take a little hit. You might see a little bit of a pullback in the jobs numbers or something. And but this is all for a purpose. And Trump thinks we can get there. I don't know if we can, but he thinks we can. And that purpose is, okay. China decides, you know, we're going to pull back our tariffs, too. And we are going to start negotiating in good faith on issues of trade with the United States. And what would that do? What would that do for us? What would that do for China? Sometimes trying to get to a better future, you've got to push through some tough times. I think that's a very simple but important way to look at what's going on here with trade. If Trump is wrong, if this thing blows up in our faces, I assure you, we'll come on the show and we'll talk about it. We'll deal with it. But uh, I think Trump's earned the leeway that we've got to give him a chance on this one. He is all in. Let's see how the Donald does. We'll be right back. Summertime, it's always a good time to get yourself some new gear. I've got an idea for you. How about you get some incredibly comfortable T-shirts, performance wear. I mean performance wear polos, lightweight tees, long sleeve tees that are top quality fabrics and also have designs that are all about patriotism and America. Nine line apparel is what you want. It is what you need if those are things that you're interested in, my friends. The founder and CEO from the Special Operations Community and the Nine Line team is all about supporting veterans and supporting a lifestyle of patriotism, love of freedom, and love of America. They've got a wide range of apparel, gear, and accessories for the patriotic American available at NineLineApparel.com. Please use the coupon code BUCK20, that's BUCK20, to save 20% off your entire next order. 
That's NineLineApparel.com, coupon code BUCK20 for a great deal, 20% off. It's like a special buck sale. For years now, I have watched as the left has devolved into intolerant, inflexible, illogical, hateful, misguided, ill-informed, un-American, hypocritical, menacing, callous, ignorant, narrow-minded, and at times, blatantly fascistic behavior and rhetoric. Liberalism has been co-opted and absorbed by the very characteristics it claims to fight against. For years now, I've watched as people on the left have become anesthetized to their own prejudices and bigotry, and the prejudices and bigotry of those around them who echo their values. I have watched as formerly sensible people who claim to reject racism have come to embrace the principles of universally hating and blaming all of society's problems on all people who have white skin. In an effort to gain voters and maintain power, the Democratic Party that I once loved has joined forces with the extremist left. The Democratic Party and the liberal media now believe their own ill-gotten conclusions and have ominously decided that they, and only they, know the remedy for society's ills. The left has decided that the solution to problems with race relations in America is more racism. The left believes that attacking, insulting, and dehumanizing one group of people elevates another. The left now believes that there are no boundaries when telling lies, omitting the truth, or misrepresenting facts when telling the news, because their end justifies their means. So that is from the uh, the video that has now become something of a viral sensation uh, and led to the hashtag walk away movement, which is a video of those. Uh, it's about renouncing liberalism video created in late May. So it's kind of been gaining steam over the last month or so by Brandon Straka, who is a hairdresser and aspiring actor. So this guy made a video about leaving liberalism. And it is going viral. And now people are saying, and I was asked about this last week. And to be honest with you, as I always am, I didn't know anything about this. So I, as I say, I will. I went and checked this out. And now I see that this is something that's, uh, you know, getting a lot of a lot of attention from a lot of folks. People are very interested in this notion of walk away. And we're, by the way, we're going to get the the other side of it, which is, People who pretend to be one thing and they're not. That will happen in a moment with Jennifer Rubin on the Washington Post, who's just just disgraceful, uh, completely and utterly appalling. Uh, the way that she writes, what she says, no, not a, not an ounce of integrity in that woman. But I'll get to that. Washington Post loves her, of course. Right. Because, you know, putting a bad conservative on air, even if they're if they're bashing conservatives, great. But even if they just look clownish, even you know, that that's good, too. But back to walk away here, uh, this guy is talking about how he, you know, the Democratic Party doesn't stand for what he thought it stands for. And, you know, he's hoping for a uh, people are saying this may help. I mean, who knows? Hoping for a blue um, or rather a red wave in November instead of a blue wave. You know, I, I got to tell you that these these meme based political movements tend not to last all that long. Here's the truth of it. Um, conservatives are always happy when somebody comes over to our side and we don't make them debase all their ideology of the past. We don't, we don't make them, we don't rake them over the coals. We don't make them walk through broken glass. If you want to 
be on the right and be in the right, you're welcome. We, we, we are looking for converts. We are not hunting for heretics. That's a very important distinction between uh, modern liberalism and modern conservatism. And I think that this attempt to use uh, social media and pop culture to reach folks and tell them that it is okay. You, know, you, you don't have to believe there are 37 genders. You, you really don't have to. You don't have to believe that uh, climate change is the most imminent national security threat that faces this country. I mean, those are things that you could only believe if you had been brainwashed and indoctrinated. No normal, rational person would think those things left to his or her own devices. No one's going to think there's 37 genders. No one's going to think the world's going to end because of CO2 in the air. So it's okay. We want... uh, we want people to come over to our side. And, and as to the effectiveness of, and by the way, that's one of the missions that I'm engaged in now. I mean, I, I try and I try and at least, I'm trying on my show uh, Rising each day to make Crystal see my side as it is. It was a really interesting study that came out recently in uh, 538, which, you know, is a, a blog that does a lot of metrics and, and gauges uh, sentiment and you know it's it's really a polling site m- made famous by Nate Silver, but it was fascinating the the number of people who were of the impression uh, that can cons- well on the left on the left they think that uh, if you're a conservative you make over two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year. Meanwhile, about two percent of conservatives you know they thought something like you know 30 percent or some huge number so the the left has been brainwashed into thinking that the um that that conservatives are rich that we're the party of wall street we're the fat cat party meanwhile we're just the party of like working and trying to keep enough money to pay your bills we're just the party of wanting to pay the mortgage and raise a family and not feel like the government is completely emptying out your pockets all the time to pay for illegals, to pay for, you know, the massive welfare state, to pay for all kinds of stuff, right? So, and then the study also said that conservatives are of the mind that uh, liberals are, there. there's a much greater percentage of liberals who fall in the LGBT community. Essentially, liberals, there are many more liberals who are gay and, and lesbian uh, than is actually reflecting the population. I think, according to this 538 study, we thought, I mean, we, conservatives, thought it was 20%, and in reality, it was like 5%. Or that's what the reality is. But I would respond to that with, well, that's because on the left, that's raised as such a big issue. Gender identity issues, gender equality issues, these are talked about as being massively important issues that need a tremendous amount of focus, and there's all these hurdles that must still be overcome. And a lot of us look at this and say, well, there must be something we're missing you know there must be a lot more transgender folks than i thought because we spent a lot of time talking about the transgender community turns out transgender community is less than one percent of the population but there must be a lot of them because the left talks about it all the time oh no it's for largely political reasons that they do but that they think that we are rich or very well off overwhelmingly it just goes to show you that one a lot of liberals don't really know any conservatives which is troubling and two, they certainly don't know why we believe what we believe. And this is why I get to the what I'm doing on Rising every morning. I'm trying to make Crystal and therefore anybody, because she brings her own audience to this, right? There are progressives who watch that show. I want them to have a 
better understanding of what our side thinks. I am hoping that I will get an email at some point in time uh, that someone who was a progressive when they started watching that show, or, or maybe who listens to this radio show too. I, I have liberals who listen to this show. I have never made a liberal convert on this show that I know that I know of yet that has come out and said, you converted me. I do have liberals, though. And they'll say, you know, I think you're smart and I appreciate what you do, even though I, I don't uh, agree with you. Um, but I am hoping that on Rising, which is hill.tv slash Rising, those of you who want to watch it, I will make a full-on conversion of somebody, bring somebody over from being a progressive to being a conservative. It's going to take, a t- I've only been on the air three weeks, right? It's going to take six months, but I think I'll get there. And that's what I'm trying to do. Don't really know if it's possible. Don't really know if it's a fool's errand. And that's why, I, and I'll tell you this, the only I only agreed to do that TV show if it was understood that my radio show is sacred, untouched, unchanged. I'm in charge. No one touches this. This is a totally separate entity. And it's just me, Premier Networks, and, and all of you. And that's, so that was a ironclad, and that is the case, right? So don't think, this show never changes. Um, wondering if I can make the other show work with what I'm trying to do, which is to bring over some converts and explain to the other side why we think what we think, because we're right. We're right. So and that's my version of, wa- of hashtag walk away. Uh, what I'm doing on rising each morning uh, on, on this show on hill.tv, that is my version of the walk away meme. I want liberals because remember, I got a, I've got a, a far left progressive co-host with a, with a considerable following. I, I, I want some of her people to see the world the way I see, understand why I see the world that way, way I do. And, you as well, why you see it that way, and they'll come join our team. And that, to me, is real success. Anybody can just yell and scream and talk about how crappy the other side is these days. And anyone can slice and dice them, although not as well as we do here in the hut. We'll be right back. He's back with you now, because when it comes to the fight for truth, the buck never stops. Fake news and enemy of the people, I would suggest one of two things. Either the entire press corps walk out of the briefing room. Why should they put on air a message that is a coded word to every nutcase in America to come after them? So get up and leave. Or in unison, holler back. They sit there, they take it, they record it. We have to be there. We have to um, let them say their piece. No, you don't. Um, Your lives are all in danger. Your lives are on the line. We're not going to let these people go through life unscathed. Sarah Huckabee has no right to live a life of no fuss, no muss after lying to the press, after inciting against the press. These people should be made uncomfortable, and I think that's a life sentence, frankly. That's supposed to be a conservative, everybody, according to the Washington Post, at least. That is Jennifer Rubin, who exists only to antagonize people that she pretends to be fighting alongside ideologically. She is a Trojan horse conservative. I've talked about them for a long time. The, the, the mainstream media, the fake news, love to use these people because they're such, uh, they think, effective propaganda tools against their ideological enemies. You see, to have a defector from the right is oh so much more fantastic. Uh, is oh so much more fantastic for their purposes than to actually have somebody who has to make a fair and honest argument about why conservatism is wrong. 
I mean, Rubin, though, on this issue in particular, is just a nutcase. And saying that a life sentence of making Sarah Sanders uncomfortable is something that a, this is somebody who says she's a conservative. She would advocate for that. Just goes to show you that there is no there is no decency anymore. There is no morality anymore. There's only anti-Trumpism. And uh, and she continues. She goes a bit further on this. This is, again, the Washington Post's favorite conservative columnist. She has a, a blog there called Right Turn at the Washington Post. Here's what she has to say about the Supreme Court and abortion. Play five. Ms. Collins and Ms. Murkowski, the two women Republicans, um, that they will be held responsible. They are doing the dance. They are pretending that um, because a nominee says this is all about precedent, that they can vote for him. No. The message to those two women by Democrats, by pro-choice women in those two states, by the entire states of Maine and Alaska has to be simple. You vote for this, Ms. Collins, Ms. Murkowski, you have voted to criminalize abortion. This is on you. And we're not going to accept these nonsense excuses that, well, because he said he was in favor of precedent, this won't count, you can vote for him. No, it has to be all out on the ground in those states. Those women have to be put under a glaring light um, so that they finally have to make a choice that actually does go against their party, unless they were just phony pro-choice women all along, which is distinctly possible. What a phony, huh? You mean like writing under the byline of being on the right when you are, in fact, a Trojan horse operating for the other side? She's the equivalent of an ideological spy, right? She pretends to be on our side of the aisle so she can just get as much information as she can and she can she can fight in our uniform, right? This is, it reminds me of in Afghanistan, you know, you'll have... Uh, uh, green on blue violence where you have somebody who is, you know, like Afghan military who wear an Afghan military uniform or sometimes is Afghan military and will try to take out and sometimes does take out some of our guys. You know, she's like that. I mean, she's not a, a Trump conservative, but she's not a conservative at all. She's not a Republican at all. Uh, she is fight actively fighting for the other side. And that the Washington Post still holds her up as a conservative is an embarrassment. I mean, they should be embarrassed, but I think they're incapable of embarrassment. Uh, it's atrocious. folks. There, there's no attempt at honesty. There's no intellectual integrity on this whatsoever. And I mean, to have somebody on the right these days who is advocating not just for abortion, which this woman is, uh, which Jennifer Rubin is. I mean, she may be that she in some ways she may be the most dishonest columnist in America. Uh, my friend Charles Cook over at National Review, if you haven't seen it, just did a I mean, it is it is truly an epic takedown. I mean, people use that. And it wasn't mean or nasty. It was just she wrote this a year ago. This is what she writes now. She wrote this 18 months ago. This is what she writes now. A woman has no ideological core, no principles, nothing. But that makes her effective for the left, don't you see? Because the fact that she's such a disaster and only attacks her own makes her the perfect conservative in the eyes of the Washington Post. And this is the best they can do. I'm sure they pay her real money to write a blog or write her columns over there. I'm sure they pay her pretty well. The Washington Post, you know, they got that Bezos money. But this is why I just don't want to hear it. The Washington Post, the New York Times, they're not just revered papers that are doing their best to prevent the facts. They are propaganda organs. There's a lot of lying going on on a, on a regular basis at these organizations. I don't mean about the facts. I mean about editorial bent. I mean about the way they construct the narrative. And then just on uh, anyone who advocates for this harass Trump administration officials uh, as a means of protest is somebody that I've got a problem with.
anybody that's really advocating that, it, we, I, I want to have words with them because it's completely over the line. All right, we got we got roll call coming up here in just a moment, team. So stick around. Rock and roll, fellow Patriots. Time to spread some freedom coast to coast. It's time for Roll Call. All right, let's get into the Roll Call. But first, of course, please do download the Freedom Hut with Buck Sexton podcast. If you are a podcast listener already, it's under the Buck Sexton show. You'll see that extra podcast thrown in there. And also, we should be getting it up on Stitcher if it's not there already. Uh, please do download and listen to it whenever you get a chance. Plan on another one this week, probably by Thursday, Friday at the latest. All right, first up here, Karen writes, uh, Watching Only the Strong, fun movie. I have done lots of work with underprivileged kids. Their parents often don't get them routine dental care, let alone orthodontia and tooth bleaching, so they usually don't have perfect teeth like all the actors in the movie, uh, but you don't watch martial arts movies for grim reality. All right, Karen. Well, that's uh, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that one. I'm I'm happy but surprised you like only the strong. It is fun to sing along though. Banana way, banana. You you know what I mean if you see the movie. There's a lot of that going on. Uh, all right. Hey, Buck. I've noticed this is from Sean. Every time you do your commercial for Dig Defense, you list off the places it's available, and one of those Menards you always pronounce incorrectly. It's pronounced Menards. And you can hear their jingle at the link below. <laughs> oh, man, I've been saying it wrong. Menards? Menards. Menards? Sorry. Menards. There we go. All right. You're right on this one. But savor the flavor because it won't happen again. But no, seriously, Sean, thanks. I, I do appreciate being corrected when I'm doing live reads. Need to get all that stuff right. Next up here, we have Caroline, who writes, I was viewing the text messages between Peter Strzok and Lisa Page, which are reenacted and available in their entirety on YouTube, and was amused to see Lisa Page say that Mitch McConnell reminds her of a turtle. Regular listeners to your show note that you will also you have also noted this likeness, calling him Yertle the Turtle. You and Miss Page could not be more ideologically supposed, uh, opposed so if you agree on this one thing, it must be pretty evident. Mitch is, in fact, a turtle. She'll tie. Well, Caroline, I, I just tease Mitch a little bit. We hope that he comes on, well, radio maybe, but really we want to get him on my TV show, Hill.TV slash Rising. Uh, we are hoping to get the majority leader to come and hang out with us. That is the plan. Michael writes, uh... Today's modern gypsies, media gypsies, are pretty much rootless, and I count myself among them. No place ever felt particularly like home, and I've always lamented that, so that's one of the reasons why I miss these old guys who wrote and reported on the places they called home. Oh, look at you, back to rolled-up shirt sleeves with ties slightly askew. Indeed, Michael, indeed. And yeah, it's true about media these days. Everyone has to bounce all over the place. You... Only advance your career by making your way into bigger markets, usually. And if you're going to just be operating in the digital space, then in a sense, you're in every market. You know, if you're not local, if you're in local news, you got to keep pushing to get to bigger and bigger places. If you're in national level digital news, 
you're competing against everybody else off the bat, and so your local sense uh, sensibility doesn't really matter. All true. Keith writes, Buck, when are we going to see a direct link to your show in the Hills phone app? Uh, Keith, that is a very good question. Um, I will find out from our tech team here at thehill.com. I do not know, but you ask an important question, so I will look into it. Thomas writes, whoop, here we go. Good show today on Rising Buck. Crystal Ball and the louder voices on the left support this insane campaign to abolish ICE using their mantra of caged babies to exaggerate concern. It's a made-to-order optics gift for the media. What they fail to discuss is all the activity behind the curtains by ICE to secure this country from terrorists and violent illegal criminals. Uh, The effort by the media and biased politicians to reignite fear of a nuclear war with North Korea is fabricated. Uh, Shields high from Thomas. Uh, Thomas, look, I I totally agree. The media is playing all kinds of games with this stuff. They're not being honest about what's really going on at the border. They're also not being honest about what's really going on with the North Korea deal. But we would expect nothing less, right? I mean, this is how they are. This is who they are. And this is the way things will continue from the mainstream media. No no question about it. All righty. Next up here, Liam writes, Buck, love the show and the taste of Black Rifle Coffee. Well, Liam, you are, you are a man of exceptional taste. Question. Is it a feasible scenario and desirable one for Trump to just uh, fire Sessions, special counsel, the deputy attorney general, end it all and just publish all the documents, especially all the texts between the two FBI agents plotting his downfall? I'm sorry, but in the court of public opinion, to me, the documents would trump anything the liberal media could launch against him. Your thoughts? Liam, I understand the complete lack of of willingness to sit around. It's not even lack of patience, right? Because we've been patient. I understand the desire to just get to the bottom of this and make it all end. But I do think that it would in some ways be playing into the left's hands for Trump to just go all in, all out, and take all the information and just put it out there, right? Because there would be some stuff that's probably legitimately sensitive. Some of it, most of it not, but there'd be some things that we should definitely... Uh, want to keep from public view for reasons of safety or sources and methods. Uh, but I think that the best thing now is to let this thing play out because it's just going to continue on as is. And it's going nowhere, folks. It's going nowhere. And when we turn back and, and look at this, you know, one thing that the left doesn't really understand is that we remember stuff. We remember the way the mainstream media completely debased themselves in order to worship at the altar of Barack Obama and that affects our willingness to listen to them now on other issues, right? We know that for eight years, like, oh, Obama's a genius. He's incredible. He's perfect. And so now they say, oh, no, we're just doing our job, sir. We're just speaking truth to power in the White House. We're like, yeah, we know what truth to power is when it's a Democrat you like in the White House. Very different thing. So we also will remember how nasty and underhanded and disrespectful they've been in this whole special counsel process, the Russia collusion fantasy, they're going to hope that it just fades away, that they can just move on to the next thing. After they've, after they've tried this, they'll move on to something else, right? They'll have some other scandal they'll sink their teeth into. And I think it's because the modern left really can't win the argument on any important national issue based on their position, right? based on the facts. Uh, they have to come up with these emotionally compelling narratives to take the place of, Real policy debate. That's what I see happening. 
All right, Chuck is next here. Let's try this roll call question. Buck, love the new show. What are your thoughts on AMLO winning the Mexican election? Will he make it worse, if possible, or better for Mexicans? Shields high and MAGA from Chuck. Well, Chuck, I talked a bit about this on the show, as you know. So if you missed that, please go back and check out that part of it. This is a good plug for the podcast. Um, but I would also say that, uh, y- you know, it's I- I'm very, just to repeat, I- I'm very skeptical that AMLO is going to be a good thing for Mexico and a good thing for us. I think you're going to see some big problems that come out of this. I really do. Uh, all right. Next up here, Steve. Shields high, Buck. I've been a loyal fan for many years and greatly appreciate all that you do to get out the conservative message. The problem that I have with rising is that it is another opportunity for liberals to propagate their nonsense. They already have the mainstream media, Hollywood, and universities as mouthpieces, They don't need any more outlets for their dangerous message. I know you're just being an honorable guy, but we don't need to give the left more opportunities to damage our country. I consider myself a constitutional libertarian, and I would rather see you and a libertarian host uh, on rising rather than just another misguided leftist. Just my two cents. Keep up the good work. Semper Fi from a United States Marine Corps Vietnam vet. Well, Steve, look, I I totally respect and appreciate your opinion on this one. And I'll just say that, you know, if you want, if you want unfiltered, unadulterated, pure uh, Freedom Hut, you, you just come here to the show and, of course, the Freedom Hut podcast. But just come here to the Buck Sexton show because this is where I just get to give you exactly what it is, how it is. I don't have to be polite to anyone. I don't have to play any games. I'm trying something else with this show. We'll see if it works. You know, I'm, I'm watching many of the shows back, and, and I certainly feel like sometimes, you know, my... Uh, Polite nature is, is something I need to need to keep an eye on. And and ultimately we'll just see if it's if it's functioning well. The the point of it is to create a dialogue on air with rising uh hill.tv slash rising, where we can see if we can actually have an exchange of ideas and maybe I can bring Crystal over to my side a little bit on some things. And maybe she can do the same thing with me. Without Shaming conservatives or owning libs. That's our mantra. That's our mantra every day on the show. We do not shame conservatives. We do not own the libs. Uh, is it possible, though, my friend? I don't know. It's really hard, especially these days. You know, And there are just some issues. As we get deeper and deeper into the fight over abortion in the Supreme Court, for example, I don't, I don't have a moderate, you know, moderation button, really, on abortion issues. I don't have the, well, you know, maybe I'm kind of okay. That No, I don't, I don't have that. It just doesn't exist. So that could be something we're gonna, I'm going to have to watch out for on the show, and, and I don't know what that really means. The good news is, though, that you're listening to the radio show, and the radio show is always going to be this, which is just me getting to tell you what matters and us to have a discussion about how we feel about all the things that are happening in this country and have a discussion about liberty and constitutionalism and just the truth. Isn't that so nice? Isn't that such a feels almost like a quaint thing to say these days. Let's have a discussion where we focus on the truth. That's going to be it for today. Friends, please do uh, spread the word about that podcast. It is on Apple iTunes uh, store, The Freedom Hunt with Buck Sexton. Please check it out. Until tomorrow, my friends, shields high. Ever find yourself wincing at the taste of some weak sauce commie coffee? Let me tell you, you don't have to deal with it anymore, friends. Join the Freedom or Die revolution with Black Rifle Coffee. I drink it every day. In fact, right now I'm sitting here with a box of Black Rifle 
K-Cups in my hand because that's what I drink. This stuff is absolutely delicious. I'm all about the different flavors they have. And by the way, because I drink a lot of coffee, sometimes I just want the taste. They even have decaf now, too. It guarantees every month, by the way, that you're going to get fresh premium coffee if you join their special coffee club. So go check it out for yourself. Visit BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck. Receive 15% off your order. That's BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck for 15% off. Please go check it out, team. I want everybody listening to this right now to go make this your coffee company. BlackRifleCoffee.com slash Buck. 